Welcome to the 23rd of January edition of Worcester Talking News, brought to you by Worcester News and Equipment for the Blind and with kind permission of the Worcester News. I'm Pippa Curtis and the team for this week's edition comprises Duncan Wynne as recording engineer, Carol Hartle on copying and admin with help from Joe Gwynne and Jean Burbeck, sorry Jean, and our readers today are Catherine Neal, Jane Fires, and myself. Phil Lee unfortunately has a bad back and has had to send his apologies. He didn't feel he'd be able to sit still for a couple of hours, so we're just the three of us this week. I'd like to extend a warm welcome to any new listeners and hope you enjoy our recording. As always, we will include a list of useful telephone numbers, what's on in the local theatres, etc., the headline stories, some general news stories, Sport, Thought for the Week, Sunrise and Sunset Times, and The Birthdays. I'm sure you are all familiar now with the arrangement that the obituaries are at the very end of the recording. Back to the birthdays. If we don't have a record of your birthday and you'd like to be included, please do get in touch and we can add you to the birthday file. If you have any comments or problems, our telephone number is 01905 767 766. Please be prepared for an answer phone to take your call. Alternatively, just pop a note in your wallet. Listeners are kindly reminded to return memory sticks promptly to facilitate a smooth operation and use of resources. As you probably are aware, you'll only receive two weeks of recordings. If neither of these are returned, you will not receive further recordings. But of course, if you're unwell or have a problem, just ring us. That's 01905 676. No, I think I've just got that wrong. 767 766 and leave us a message. All our recordings are now available as podcasts via the Worcester Talking News website. And we have an extensive library which you can access via. Oh, I can't remember, but it's in the details. I'll come back to that in a minute. Sorry. Finally, the service is free to users, but if you'd like to make a donation, it can be sent to Colin Chance House, Wilds Lane, Worcester, WR5, 1DA. And whilst on the subject, I'd like to thank very much Breeden's Norton Social Committee for their kind donation received this week. So let's start this week with the telephone numbers, which Jane is going to read for us. Police, non-emergency, 101. Crime Stoppers. 0800 555 Worcester Hub for Council Matters 01905 765 765 Worcester Live, which has details of what's on at the Swan Theatre, Huntingdon Hall and Henry Sandon Hall 01905 611 427 Malvern Theatres 01684892277 Samaritans now a free phone number 116123 here at Colin Chance House 01905 767 766 
Thank you, Jane. And before I uh, go to the what's on information, I have now found the relevant piece of paper about the library. For your information, the list can be provided in large print, hard copy or on tape. Just leave us a message if you want further details. So on to what's on in Worcester. I'll start over in Malvern Theatres. The world-famous vocal group The King's Singers are to make a rare visit to the region with a concert at Malvern Theatres on Tuesday, January the 28th, performing songs from recent albums and their trademark close harmony arrangements. They'll also be joined by young singers from our Monaco consorts AC Academy School Choirs in Worcestershire for A Suitcase Full of Songs, a new work by Toby Young, our Monaco Consort's composer-in-residence. The King Singers will be at Malvern on Tuesday, January the 28th, 7pm, and for details, visit malverntheatres.co.uk or call 01684892277. Malvern Theatres are also going to be marking the start of Beethoven's 250th anniversary year, later this month, with performances of the composer's second and third symphonies, played by Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, conducted by Sir Roger Norrington. The performance is on Wednesday, January the 29th at 7.45pm. Tickets are available from Malvern Theatre Box Office 01684 892277 or malvern-theatres.co.uk and that's all lowercase. Beethoven's clearly flavour of the month because there's another chance to hear his music at the new Rouse Hall in Bromsgrove on Friday, January the 31st. The English Symphony Orchestra will be playing Beethoven's third piano concert and seventh symphony. For booking details and prices, visit eso.co.uk, all lowercase. St Richard's Hospice is putting on a lantern walk at dusk around Croom Court grounds on Saturday, February the 8th. It's a mile and a half route with refreshments included in the ticket price. Adults £20, children £15, under fives free. You need to register online in advance. For more details, contact Kelly Johns on 01905 958 186 or email her. That's kjohns at strichards.org.uk. That's all lowercase. And finally, something a little bit different, a new exhibition is up and running, exploring the fact and fiction behind one of the most fascinating periods of British British history. It's opened at Worcester City Art Gallery and Museum. It's all about the Georgians, the pride and the prejudice, and is designed to lead the viewer on a grand tour of Regency Worcester, taking in the beautiful landscapes, exquisite interiors, and pastimes of the Bennets and Darcys of the city. The exhibition runs until Saturday, March the 28th, and entry is free. I thought that sounded rather fun. So that's what's on, and we will now move seamlessly on to the headlines, and Catherine has those details. Thank you, Pippa. So I'm just going to read out all the headlines of the last week and then move into the first story. On Friday, January the 17th, The headline was Oscar free of cancer. Saturday, January the 18th, takeaway 5am plan opposed by police. Monday, January the 20th, cemetery, quote, poses a risk to city's water. 
Tuesday, January the 21st, £250,000 on bollards to stop terror attacks. Wednesday, January the 22nd, Amy, 21, saves man from City Bridge. And Thursday, January the 23rd, new Costa and Greggs, but no Burger King. So I'll start with the story from last Friday, Oscar, free of cancer. The parents of a Worcester schoolboy undergoing treatment for cancer are celebrating after tests showed he's free of the disease. <clears throat> New tests have shown that Oscar Saxelby Lee has no trace of leukaemia in his body for the first time since he was diagnosed. The five-year-old from Worcester still faces another bone marrow transplant in a bid to kick-start his immune system. But his parents, Olivia Saxelby and Jamie Lee, say they and Oscar are ecstatic. Olivia said, This is what we've needed after so many blows. We knew we had to hold on to hope, but we've been so used to the heartbreaking news that we weren't expecting a straight-off negative MRD, that means minimal residual disease, result. I'm beyond proud of him. He never gives up, and even now is running on some magical steam. This is a miracle. It's a revolution. One more treatment and we can bring our baby home, where he belongs. He's ecstatic to be that step closer to better health and the childhood he so deserves. We're emotional, tired and overwhelmed, but so, so thankful. Thankful for our community, the one that's held us together, with non-stop prayers and love. Oscar will now receive another bone marrow transplant from his dad, who is a partial match, as the aggressive treatment also attacks good cells, which means his bone marrow is no longer working. The little boy from St John's underwent specialist CART treatment in Singapore after a crowdfunding campaign raised £600,000. He's only the second child in the world to have received the specialist treatment. His parents had pleaded for help to raise the cash after being told that despite a previous bone marrow transplant, Oscar's T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukaemia had returned and no other treatment options were available on the NHS. The money was raised through the Grace Kelly Childhood Cancer Trust. The charity's founder, Jen Kelly, said, His parents know he's got a long way to go, but they're celebrating. This is a huge step. He's still a really poorly little boy. He's not got a working bone marrow and needs another transplant. But at this stage, it's the absolute best outcome we could have hoped for. It's the best news we could have so far, but he does have a long way to go. Kate Wilcock, the head teacher at Pitmaston Primary School, where Oscar is a pupil, said, It's the best day ever. Amazing. There's a real buzz around the school. I've just been to the classroom to talk to Oscar's class, who've all absolutely squealed and screamed with delight. I'm absolutely blown away. A real blast of emotions. I can't even imagine how Libby and Jamie must be feeling. For us at school, it's the best day we could ever have dreamt of. In March last year, more than 4,200 people attended a stem cell donor search at Pitmaston Primary, taking a test to see if they could help Oscar. And now the story on Saturday, January the 18th. Takeaway at 5am plan, opposed by police. Police have raised serious concerns about a takeaway's request to open until 5am at weekends. 
West Mercia Police said the plan by Jack's Chicken in Fourgate Street to stay open until the very early hours at weekends, bank holidays and on New Year's Eve would contribute to an increase in antisocial behaviour and disorder in the city centre. Sergeant Martin May said this premise is within the Worcester Community Impact Zone, the CIZ. This zone is there for a reason. In addition, there is a taxi rank opposite Jack's Chicken. This will result in there being an increase in numbers staying in the area, with an expected increase in disorder. Sergeant May said he'd met with the owner, Aquil Mohammed, to discuss the possibility of having two bouncers wearing body cameras on the front door of Jack's after 1am, but police still felt it would increase disorder. Rachel Mitchell, general manager of a labouring White House hotel in Fourgate Street, has also opposed the extended opening hours, according to Sergeant May's objection. Police said the noise from drunk revellers outside the chicken shop could disrupt guests at the hotel and lead to a negative feedback online and put off guests from staying in the future. Sergeant May said there will be an increase in noise and disorder at the front of the hotel. This is a possibility that the Jack's, pos- the Jack's request to stay open until 5am could result in negative comments on TripAdvisor for the hotel. For the city, this could mean less people staying in the hotel for the weekend, with a loss of income for the whole of the city over the weekend. They object to this request. Jack's Chicken in Fourgate Street currently stays open until 1am on Thursday, Friday and Saturday. But bosses want to extend the city centre chicken shop's opening hours to stay open until the early hours on weekends, the Sunday before bank holidays and New Year's Eve. Sergeant May said three illegal immigrants were found by police at Jack's Chicken on April the 9th last year which led him to question whether owner Aquil Mohammed was supervising his business properly. He said this raises concerns regarding how the premises run. Mr Aquil will state that this was when he employed another manager. However, he has responsibility for this premise. We would suggest that this shows that he does not know what is happening on this premise and not supervising the premise to the standard we would expect. The application will go before Worcester City Council's licensing subcommittee for a decision next Friday, January the 23rd. Jack's Chicken falls within the council's cumulative impact zone, the CIZ, which is an area where applications are placed under greater scrutiny when looking for new or extended alcohol or late-night licences. Applications in the city's cumulative impact zone are usually rejected on principle and the burden of proving the takeaway would not cause further crime and disorder falls onto the owners. Last February, nearby chicken shop K's in the Cross had its call to open until 5am rejected by the council over fears it would add further to crime and disorder in the city centre. Jack's owner, Aquil Mohammed, declined to comment. And the headline for Monday, January the 20th, Cemetery poses a risk to city's water. Major concerns have been raised over whether the land at a cemetery is suitable to bury people in, 
with fears coffins could leak into the city's water. The Environment Agency, EA, said it has a number of major concerns about Worcester Mayor Aladita's application for retrospective planning permission for burial land at Worcester Muslim Cemetery in John Comyn Drive due to possible water pollution and has called for alternative locations to be found. The EA says the site, used as a cemetery since 2005, is unsuitable for human burials and doesn't meet its standards for groundwater and has raised these fears on at least three occasions dating back to 2008. Three letters of concern were sent by the EA highlighting its issues with the site in August 2008, June 2010 and April 2016. The objection by the EA said, We do not consider this site to be suitable for the intended use of burial of human corpses. We would like the applicant to consider other more suitable alternative locations for the purposes of human burials where there are no groundwater risks. We object to the location of this proposed burial site with a possible high water table and therefore this application does not meet our minimum groundwater protection requirements. Burial sites must be at least 250 metres away from any well, borehole or spring supplying water for human consumption or used in food production and at least 30 metres from any spring or flowing body of water not used for human consumption, according to the EA. The cemetery site would be within 60 metres of Barbourne Brook. There are also concerns that historical landfill sites at Bilford, Bilford Road, which sits about 20 metres away, would also be considered a risk because of gas. Holes dug for burials could cause slumps in the ground and gas to leak into the ground and water. The report said, We have concerns that burials are already taking place at this site without planning permission and against the advice we previously provided. We would only agree to proposals for new or existing developments if the risk to groundwater is acceptable, and this appears to be high risk to surface and groundwater. We expect operators of cemeteries to take appropriate measures to manage their sites to ensure they do not cause unacceptable discharges, which may lead to pollution. All cemetery developments and burials must maintain an unsaturated zone below the level of the base of the graves. The EA said coffins are being sealed with concrete at the cemetery to prevent substances released from the corpses buried below the water table seeping into the groundwater. However, using concrete means there is no way for the substances to escape from the coffins and thus degrade naturally in the soil. So if the caskets did leak in the future, there would be more harmful substances inside. EA said it would also object to the separate plan to expand the cemetery for the same reasons. The land which would be part of the large expansion would also be at a greater flood risk. The application by Councillor Ditter was submitted at the start of September last year and the site has been in use since 2005 without planning permission. The plan had been earmarked for a decision in December but has been delayed due to the EA's objection. Worcester City Council said it is currently in discussions with the EA over its objection.
Council planners said the cemetery required the correct planning permission before plans for a 785-plot extension could be submitted. The council said planning permission was first granted in 1978 and renewed in 1983. The part of the site which is currently the subject of a retrospective planning application has been in use since 2005. Councillors first looked at plans to transfer ownership of the land from the City Council to the nominated trustees, Worcester Muslim Welfare Association, the Al Medina Islamic Centre and the Jalalabad Association in September 2010. The Council's Cabinet backed the plans in July 2012 and the Council approved the transfer in September 2012. The expansion plans show how a new pavilion and a peace garden would all be built at the cemetery as well as a new building at its entrance to house a small office, mortuary, toilets and a washing area. The cemetery would be extended in three phases if the plans were approved. The first phase would see 172 burial plots built, as well as the main building at the cemetery's entrance and pavilion. The second phase would see a further 388 burial plots built, before a third phase of 275 plots built. A City Council spokesman said... Some of the Environment Agency's comments appear to refer to a different plot of land and we have asked them to consider clarifying their letter. Councillor Ditter and the Muslim Welfare Association both told the Worcester News they were unaware of the EA's concerns. Right. Thank you, Pippa. And the next story for Tuesday, January the 21st, is £250,000 on bollards to stop terror attacks. Around £250,000 could be spent on permanently installing anti-terrorism measures throughout the city centre. Worcester City Council wants to install strengthened bollards and planters at various points throughout the city centre in a bid to protect visitors during large events and festivals. A total of 12 locations have been put forward as sites for bollards and the more aesthetically pleasing planters including both ends of the High Street, around the Cathedral Square and the Cross, Friar Street and both ends of Broad Street. Fish Street, Copenhagen Street, The Shambles, Pump Street, Charles Street and the Corn Market have also been mentioned as possible locations for barriers and bollards. Anti-terrorism barriers and bollards were put in place around the city centre during the last three Victorian fairs, based on police and government advice. Putting the barriers up at last year's fair cost £36,500. And installing permanent measures would save a lot of money, according to the Council. The Council report also said that anti-terrorism measures could protect crowded streets from vehicles crashing due to a mechanical fault or if a driver blacked out. A spokesman for the City Council said... Worcester City Council is supporting a growing programme of events and festivals to attract more shoppers and visitors into the city centre and help support Worcester's economy. It's important that the city centre environment is safe and attractive, so the City Council is considering installing bollards and planters at various points to physically restrict the access of vehicles. This is in line with steps taken in many cities and towns across the country. There's nothing to suggest that Worcester is at any greater threat than anywhere else in the UK. The Place and Economic Development Committee 
will be recommended to commit £250,000 to support this work. Worcester's reputation as a safe place to visit is very important, the council said, as it looks to attract more tourists and shoppers through new events and festivals, as well as hosting more established events, such as the Victorian Christmas Fair and the Christmas Lights Switch On. Other events include Remembrance Sunday, graduations, markets and food festivals, where thousands flood the city centre's streets. The City Council's Place and Economic Development Subcommittee meets next Monday, January the 27th, to discuss the report. Councillor Steve Mackay, Vice-Chairman of the Income Generation Committee, said protecting the people of Worcester and visitors to the city was the most important thing. He added, if the council was acting on the advice of police, then it was the right thing to do. He said, as the council works to attract more people to the city, it was important to ensure Worcester was a safe place to visit. The council said it should consider buying permanent protection, such as larger bollards and concrete planters, rather than the more expensive retractable bollards and road blockers to protect the city centre. The safety measures the council plans to put in place would restrict access to the city centre's pedestrianised areas, while still allowing vans and lorries to carry on delivering to shops and restaurants, the council said. The roads would then be fully closed off during fairs and events. And here is uh, the news on Wednesday, January the 22nd. Amy, 21, saves man from City Bridge. A heroine came to the rescue of a man whom she thought was going to throw himself off Worcester's main river bridge. Amy Salter, aged 21, put her arms around the man's waist to help him after he stripped down to his boxer shorts and climbed up onto the side of Worcester Bridge on Monday night. I spent around ten minutes talking to him, trying to calm him down, asking him questions, asking him if he had family and what would they want to lose him, Miss Salter said. Miss Salter was walking home after work around 7pm when she saw the man on the bridge looking out over the river. At first I didn't think anything of it, but then it seemed strange because it was so cold. I was surprised that someone would be standing there. The man started removing his clothes and Miss Salter feared he would jump into the river. I just went into crisis mode and ran over there. Miss Salter from St John's Worcester put her hands out to try and help him. And when he climbed up, she kept hold of him to prevent him hurting himself, but also to say, look, someone's here and I care about you. You don't need to do this. Hundreds of cars parked, but no one stopped except one man who did get out of the car, Miss Salter said. I was on the phone to 999, who was struggling to find the location. He, the man, was constantly saying the mental health system in Worcestershire had failed him. He was saying how they haven't been able to address his issues. The 21-year-old said the man was coherent and did not appear to be under the influence of alcohol or drugs, but seemed to have completely lost hope. The man eventually came down and started walking away. Police officers arrived at the scene. Miss Salter said, I was in shock at this point. More than anything, it's the fact that he felt there was no help for him. It speaks volumes about the NHS at the moment. I myself have dealt with the mental health services as well as friends. Mental health needs to be a priority now more than ever.
There is still such a stigma. Police arrived and handcuffed the man. West Mercia Police said the man was safely detained by police and is now receiving the relevant support. A spokesman said, We would like to thank the members of the public who helped the man before our police officers were at the sign. Scene. Whatever you're going through, you can call Samaritans free at any time on 116123. This number will not appear on your phone bill. Email joe at samaritans.org or visit samaritans.org to find details of your nearest branch. And the headline for Thursday, January the 23rd, New Costa and Greggs, but no Burger King. A popular coffee chain and a bakery could soon be opening two new stores at a city retail park, but rumours of a long-awaited Burger King have been quashed. Costa Coffee and Greggs are planning to move into a new building in Blackpool Retail Park in Worcester, with the tenant of the third and final unit still the subject of confidential discussions. Burger King has shared units across the country with Costa and Greggs, but the fast-food giant has ruled out a much-anticipated return to the city. A spokesman for Burger King said, Burger King franchises are regularly evaluating opportunities to bring our our great-tasting products to more guests in new locations. We do not currently have any information regarding a restaurant at this location. Artists' impressions of the three empty stores show three signs, a red coffee and blue bakery, indicating Costa and Greggs, with a green sandwich sign, perhaps hinting a new subway branch could also be opening in the future. A statement included with the planning application said, the secret third store typically partners Costa and Greggs in pod developments elsewhere in the country. The stores would bring around 21 new jobs, according to the application. The the new units would be in a 397-square-metre pod next to the M&S Food Hall, which opened last year, replacing 31 car parking spaces. Costa would move into the biggest space, with Greggs taking over the middle unit. The lost car parking spaces would be replaced elsewhere in the retail park. Two outdoor seating areas outside Costa and Greggs would also be built. A new Costa and Blackpool would be Worcester's fourth, with three already trading in the city centre, excluding branches at Tesco and Worcestershire Royal Hospital, and the fourth Greggs to open, with two in the city centre and a third in Warnden. Costa closed a store in The Cross in Worcester in 2018. A statement by Legal and General Assurance for the application said the new Costa, Greggs and Sandwich shop would bring new jobs to Worcester. The proposed retail pod is intended primarily to service the retail park, providing visitors who are drawn to the retail park by the big box retail users the opportunity of purchasing refreshments and light meals to eat in or take out as part of the same shopping trip, the statement read. It continued... Costa and Greggs are committed to taking two of the units and the occupant of the remaining unit is in confidential discussions regarding the agreement for lease. The unit sizes proposed reflect the requirements of specific operators. Furthermore, all three typically trade in partnership with each other in retail pod developments across the country and have established a functional relationship 
between each other and the retail developments they serve. Well, fingers on the buzzers for who gets that third slot. (laughs) So that concludes the headline stories for the week and we will now move on to uh, some of the main stories in the papers over the last few days. Catherine, if you'd like to start us off. Yes. Well, here's news of a sport I've never heard about before, so I wonder if you have. Uh, The title of the article is Axe-Throwing Plan for Cities Arches. A new indoor axe-throwing venture could soon be opening in the city. The yet-to-be-named venue would open in a vacant unit in Worcester's Victorian Arches in Netherton Court next to the Arch Rivals Micropub and would include eight lanes across two floors to give visitors the chance to throw axes into a wooden target. Daniel Charlton, who runs Outdoor Activity Centre Action Adventures, said he was looking to expand and saw the soon-to-be-refurbished arches as the perfect place to grow his business. In his application, he said, Indoor urban axe-throwing is a growing social sport within the UK. It originated in America and is now hugely popular worldwide with competitive leagues and world championships. I currently own an outdoor activity centre in Cradley, which offers quad trekking, archery, air rifle, laser clay, crossbows and axe-throwing. I've been operating for nearly five years and I'm looking at expanding my business with an indoor axe-throwing venue. Mr Charlton said each lane would be covered by a safety cage to protect the building and other visitors, strict rules would be in place and all axe throwing would be supervised. Safety is paramount and my safety record at my outdoor venue is 100%, he said. Participants that are not throwing will be at a safe distance to ensure no harm can come to them. There will be people supervising at all times and CCTV installed. Just like my outdoor venue, there will be strict rules in place to ensure the safety of everyone. The plan to create a new cultural quarter through the £4.5 million refurbishment of the city's Victorian railway arches moved forward earlier with the submission of a planning application by KKE Architects on behalf of the University of Worcester. If approved by the Council's planning committee, six railway arches located between Worcester Foregate Street and The Hive would be converted into studios and offices for local artists and creative businesses. KKE's designs also include a proposal to create a performance arch where a variety of musicians, actors and artists could stage informal performances and exhibitions. A number of arches in the same vicinity have already been successfully converted and are now home to thriving small businesses, including the Method Roastery, the Burger Shop and the Arch Rivals Pub. And now, call to end cull of trees in city streets. A resident has shared his concerns over culling of trees on a main road after another tree was chopped down recently. Paul Chambers, aged 50, hopes to raise awareness of the issues caused by cutting down trees without replacing them. I'm extremely concerned for the local beauty and environmental health of the St John's area and I believe it's being slowly destroyed by thoughtless action. Namely, chopping down our beautiful old trees and not replanting them on the Morven Road. The Morven Road has a stunning stretch of Victorian and grand 1930s architecture, adjacent to the even more listed and historically recognised Pitmaston House.
Along this section of road, we are lucky to have 100-year-old trees lining either side of the road. But slowly, tree by tree, year by year, these gorgeous trees are being removed by the council and thus destroying the beauty and health of our historic neighbourhood. It surely cannot be environmentally sustainable to remove and not replace these trees on a busy road. Alan Amos, Cabinet Member, with responsibility for highways at Worcestershire's County Council, said, We always look to preserve trees where possible. Unfortunately, this tree on the Morven Road had outgrown its location and has caused pavements to be raised, creating trip hazards and issues for wheelchair and motability scooter users. The road is also much busier now than when originally laid out and we have to consider the safety of the public first. The pavements on Morven Road are now home to numerous utility apparatus including water, sewage, gas, electricity, phone and broadband. So finding a space to replant comes with its challenges. If we are able to replant in this area, we will plant a species much more suitable to the urban environment. He added, Cabinet would be discussing plans for 150,000 new trees for Worcestershire next month. And a nice story here about um, a rugby star swimming for charity. An ex-rugby star will swim the channel to raise money for charity. Alex Grove, a former Worcester Warriors player, is set to swim the English Channel on August the 1st, 2020, in a bid to raise money for Acorns Children's Hospice. Worcester law firm Hallmark Hume and Friends are sponsoring his 21-mile watery endeavour. The former Worcester Warriors Centre and Scottish International has already completed several marathon swims, including the 18-kilometre Windermere One Way, but is in training to take on his next epic plunge. Mr Grove said, During my time at Worcester Warriors, we worked closely with Acorns, and my visits there have stayed with me throughout my career and since retirement. I've now committed to taking on the challenge to swim the channel, and am thrilled that Hallmark Hume are sponsoring me. Mr Grove is hoping to raise £15,000 for the charity that provides babies and young people who have life-limiting conditions with a network of specialist palliative nursing care and support. The English Channel is an endurance swim with a special allure for long-distance swimmers who travel from all over the world to take on the 21-mile stretch of water from England to France. And I'm sure you'll agree with me. We wish Mr Grove best of luck in August. The next item uh, is about um, the hospital. Hip break patients died after 30 days. Dozens of patients died within 30 days of breaking their hip after being admitted to Worcestershire Royal Hospital in one year, an audit has found. Worcestershire Royal Hospital dealt with 358 hip fractures during 2018, according to the latest annual National Hip Fracture Database report by the Royal College of Physicians. Of these, 26 people died within 30 days of sustaining the fracture. At 7.3%, the hospital had one of the highest mortality rates of the 177 trauma units across England, Wales and Northern Ireland, where the average rate was 
Hip fractures are the most common reason for admission to orthopaedic wards, according to the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, mainly affecting older people who may suffer from osteoporosis or weak bones. Those who break their hip are at increased risk of suffering potentially fatal complications, including infections, pneumonia and cardiovascular conditions, such as heart failure or strokes. The National Hip Fracture Database was established in 2007 and examines the quality of patient care across hospitals, across hospitals using a series of key performance indicators. Since then, deaths within a month of a hip fracture have halved, with around 4,000 people dying during 2018. However, the report states that only a minority of patients will completely regain their previous abilities – with increased dependency and difficulty walking, meaning a quarter will need long-term care. Hip fractures incur an annual cost of over a billion pounds to health and social services, 1% of the NHS budget. Of the patients treated at Worcestershire Royal Hospital, 170, that is 48%, had not been discharged to their home or original residence within 120 days of their injury. Across England, Wales and Northern Ireland, this was the case for 31% of patients. And now, a lorry driver cleared on a crash that killed cyclist. A lorry driver has been cleared of causing death by dangerous driving following the crash which killed a cyclist and injured his friend. Richard Merris was behind the wheel of an articulated lorry on the A449 at Hartlebury when there was a crash between his HGV and two cyclists, Barry Bretnell, and of Briarley Hill, was declared dead at the scene following the crash on October the 22nd, 2018. His friend, William Higgins, also known as Roy, was also seriously injured as the front of the lorry struck the cyclist from behind. A jury, yesterday cleared the 50-year-old of causing death by dangerous driving and death by careless driving in relation to Mr Brettel and of causing serious injury by dangerous driving in relation to Mr Higgins. Mr Brettel suffered multiple injuries in the crash captured on CCTV from a nearby metal yard, which happened at about 10.55am. Mr Maris had been delivering sand on behalf of Raven Transport, where he was a director, to Hanson's Concrete in Sheriff Street, Worcester. It was a sunny day, and both cyclists had been wearing helmets and light-coloured or fluorescent clothing. Mr Brettel's post-mortem revealed extensive multiple rib fractures, a fracture of the thoracic spine, catastrophic haemorrhaging around the ribs and throat injuries, including bruising to the larynx and a fracture of the hyoid bone. Mr Merris of Masters Lane, Hale Zone, said he had seen the cyclists and left enough room to overtake them as he drove in the direction of Worcester. A police officer at the scene had taken note of what Mr Merris said. Mr Merris had told him the two of them were parallel and one of them wobbled out. In the witness box he also said he had moved over to pass the cyclists and also said he'd been momentarily blinded by the sun. When he heard a bang he thought he'd had a tyre burnout carrying out progressive braking 
to avoid the lorry veering off. Mr. Maris estimated he'd been travelling at 40 to 43 miles per hour, and the evidence showed he was driving within the speed limit when the crash happened. Mr. Michael Prime, the defence expert witness who's worked in investigating road traffic collisions for more than 30 years, said it was entirely plausible Mr. Brettel had moved into the path of the lorry. Mr. Maris, wearing a dark suit, showed no emotion in the dock, although he briefly closed his eyes when the first two not guilty verdict came in after four, five hours and 56 minutes of deliberations. The jury then retired to continue deliberating the remaining count, the causing death by careless driving, but returned a further not guilty verdict after six hours and six minutes of deliberations sobbing could be heard from the public gallery. Judge Nicholas Cartwright said, Mr. Merris can be discharged. You can leave the dock, Mr. Merris. And this is a story about the splash pad in Gallivault Park. Urgent plans to build a fence around the city's splash pad to stop people from walking over it and making it a health and safety risk will be discussed next week. Worcester City Council wants to spend £25,000 on the fence to prevent bikers, skaters and dogs from getting on the popular splash pad in Gallivant Park to reduce the potential for the water becoming contaminated. The fence would also keep the splash pad clean, reduce the potential for the water being contaminated or the surface being damaged, maintain health and safety standards and reduce the frequency of repairs, the City Council said. A report by the council, which includes refurbishment recommendations from officers, said installation of measures such as a fence or partial fence to reduce the risk of infection and improve water quality has been recommended. With the current high levels of footfall across the surface when the splash pad is not open, a large range of pathogens are introduced, increasing the risk of bacterial infection. This is caused by people, dogs and other wildlife walking across it with prams, bikes and scooters riding over it. This work has been prioritised due to the health and safety concerns and risks associated with not having the area fenced off. The City Council's Environment Committee meets next Tuesday, January 28th to discuss the proposal. Several other planned refurbishments amounting to more than 300,000 and due to be completed across the next three years will also be discussed. The planned work also includes a new basketball hoop, which would replace the one at Gallivant Park, which is due to be removed as part of work to create new tennis courts. The proposed court would either be in Gallivant Park or Pitchcroft. Other proposed work in the next year includes a new access gate to the Cripplegate Park play area and repairs to its tarmac surface, and the start of ongoing repairs to wet-pour surfacing at 36 play areas across the city. If councillors agree to the work, the old play area at Tunnel Hill, where equipment was removed some years ago, will be restored as green open space. Right. Uh, Next story. 
Members of Kay's Theatre Group welcomed the Mayor of Worcester, Councillor Ala Ditter, and Mayoress Nassim Akhtar to rehearsals of the forthcoming panto, Robinson Crusoe and the Pirates. The Mayor and Mayoress enjoyed a sneak preview of the show, which opens at the Swan Theatre on January the 30th and runs until February the 9th. Sue Cassidy, show director, said... Rehearsals are at the final stage, just before we go into the theatre. We're so excited to bring this show to life with such a talented group of actors, dancers, musicians and backstage helpers. Once again, Case Panto finds treasure, and this is a performance not to be missed. Proceeds from this year's production will support St Richard's Hospice and its Build 2020 appeal. For tickets, visit Worcester Live box office at Huntingdon Hall, Go to worcesterlive.co.uk, all lowercase, or call 01905 611 427. And now here in the Occasional History series on, on in paper, um, Paul Harding from Discover History tells of the life and times of Edward Winslow, a pilgrim who became one of the founding fathers of America. When Henry VIII broke with the Catholic Church and founded the Church of England in the 16th century, the country became very turbulent. Some people wanted to follow the old religion, and others thought the Church of England was not far enough removed from it. On, 11th, on the 18th of October, sorry, 1595, Edward Winslow was born in Droitwich. His father owned a salt mine and was under sheriff of the town. Edward was fortunate enough to get a fine education in wealthy Worcester, then a cathedral and wool-producing city at its peak in trade and commerce. Education was a privilege of the rich, and Edward was schooled between 1606 and 1611 at King's School. The school was refounded in 1541 by Henry VIII after monastic learning which began in 680 AD, came to a close during the dissolution of the monasteries. Students had to be already literate, of native genius and an aptitude for learning, and of course male. Edward's time at King's School set him up for his epic journey aboard the Mayflower and for life. Schooling took place in the majestic College Hall, which was once the refectory for the monks based at the Cathedral Monastery. This building is currently being studied and restored as part of the Undercroft project where the new Cathedral Education Centre is being created. The school days lasted around 11 hours with lessons in Latin, rhetoric, history, geography, mythology and music. When Edward Winslow left King's Worcester, he became a printer's apprentice in London where he began to help a religious groups called the Separatists. This group thought the Church of England was still too Catholic, and their views eventually made them leave Great Britain for Leiden in Holland. After several years struggling to settle, this group of pilgrims decided to arrange a journey to America. Edward Winslow's education allowed him to help make the necessary arrangements. Two ships were hired to take them to the New World, the Speedwell, which leaked like a sieve, and the Mayflower, which ended up making the dangerous voyage across the Atlantic alone and overcrowded. When they arrived in America in November 1620, Edward became the third person to sign the Mayflower Compact, which laid down how the colony would govern. 
He went on to link with the native people and created treaties over fishing, hunting and trading rights. And when the local Wapanoog chief was seriously ill, Edward nursed him back to health using chicken soup. Edward Winslow also helped with the documentation of the first Thanksgiving celebration the following year. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling so that we might, after special manner, rejoice together. And he's still remembered across the county with a statue of him in display in Droitwich. His portrait hangs in the council chamber at the town hall. Edward Winslow is the only pilgrim who was actually painted in real life at the time. And the science block, located in the King's School, also has a plaque remembering one of the many great scholars at the school. Thank you. Muslim Charity Feeds Homeless A charity is holding an event in the city to feed the homeless and needy, whilst also promoting social cohesion. Saj Hussain, 37, founded the Purpose of Life charity five years ago in Yorkshire, but aims to create a pocket of volunteers in every town in the country. Mr Hussein said, It is so important for me to support local communities here in the UK. I think some Muslim charities are guilty of focusing their efforts abroad. I am a Muslim, but I am also a Yorkshire boy. It is very important to me that we help people here first. Prophet Muhammad said, He is not a Muslim who eats his fill when his neighbour is hungry. That doesn't mean my Muslim neighbour, that means anyone, no matter who they are or what they believe in. We started doing events monthly in Yorkshire and we're now branching out to Birmingham and Worcester. Our ethos is to break barriers within communities and make sure that everyone feels included. Especially now, with Islamophobia and negativity in the media, I think it is important to combat it with positivity. Mag's Day Centre, the Salvation Army and Asda and Worcester have all been really supportive in our mission to reach out to those who need some support, whether this be a hot meal or someone to just sit with them and have a chat. It isn't just the homeless, but people suffering with anxiety, depression, bereavement, loneliness. We'll never turn anyone away. The people that need our support is increasing every year. It's great to see so many people getting involved. We have a team of amazing volunteers who've helped with the distribution of leaflets and fundraising and serving of food. The event will run from 2pm until 4pm on Sunday. There are free taxis running from the Salvation Army in the Trinity at 1.30pm to Unity House in Hill Street and back for those wishing to attend. There will be henna tattooing, nail painting and a barber giving free haircuts along with a three-course meal. Good luck to them. Right. <clears throat> Stepway back veteran rail card. A Worcester charity has welcomed a government move for cheaper rail travel for veterans. Stepway, based in Worcester, offers a civilian skills programme and drop-in facility that aims to bridge the gap, particularly those veterans who are struggling with adapting to Civvy Street. Stepway founder Dawn Turner said, We're really excited about the government's new plans to make life easier for our veterans. We've already seen the positive changes here in Worcester. Lots of our guys are feeling really excited about these new initiatives for them. Many veterans struggle with social isolation and these rail cards mean they, they can afford to stay connected to friends, family and services. 
We have high expectations and are looking forward to what's coming next to help veterans socially, emotionally and economically. The new rail card for military veterans will be launched in November, the Department for Transport has announced. The rail card will extend cheaper train travel to more than 830,000 veterans who do not qualify for existing discounts. Holders will be able to save a third off most train tickets, although certain restrictions will apply. The card will be available to buy from November the 11th, Armistice Day, and will cost £21 for an introductory period before the price is increased to £30. Transport Secretary Grant Shapps said, Every part of society should honour the debt we owe, those who served our country. I believe that enabling former service personnel to travel more easily is the least we can do. And this is about a bus app confusion. A mum was left in tears after she was forced to pay double the cost of bus travel after a misunderstanding. Anna Watmore said she was left distressed when a mix-up with her Worcester City two-trip ticket on a smartphone app. Mrs Watmore, aged 28, said she'd bought the ticket for £4.20 from First Group's app, believing it would give her two single tickets to catch the 35 bus from her home in Glenthorne Avenue to Worcester bus station and back again with her seven-month-old son, James. But when she could not fit onto the bus with her pram, she was told to wait for the next one, despite her already activating her ticket. According to First Bus, passengers have a 15-minute window from activating their ticket to using it, and the ticket can only be used once in that time frame for one journey. But Mrs Watmore wasn't aware of the procedure. I'm sure the bus driver was. So when the next bus arrived, she scanned her ticket again, unsuccessfully. She then tried activating her second journey ticket, but as the first ticket was still open the driver's ticket machine indicated it was not valid for travel. Mrs Watmore paid another £4.50 for the Worcester day return ticket, although the bus company says this could have been avoided by waiting until the 15-minute window had elapsed. Mrs Watmore said sleepless nights with an infant would stress any parent out, but this app ordeal was the last straw. The bus left and I felt tears running down my face. I couldn't stop. I just wanted to see my mum in town. I was disgusted, distressed and depressed all day. As I then had to additionally get a ticket for £4.50, and it was £30, 30p more than I'd originally planned. I know that extra £4.50 doesn't sound a lot, but that is a bag of nappies for me and a packet of baby porridge. Rob Hughes, head of the operations at First Worcester, said... There's clearly been a misunderstanding here relating to the activation and use of the ticket. Once activated, there is a 15-minute window for when the ticket can be used. In this instance, as the ticket was already in use, it would not register again on the ticket machine until the 15 minutes has elapsed, which is why it registered an error. I want to apologise to the customer for any inconvenience caused with the misunderstanding and we will be compensating them for loss of travel. Boys to save chimps. Schoolboys have been praised by TV's Ben Garrod for organising their own fundraiser for orphaned baby chimps. Dougal Barnett, aged nine, and brother Fergus Barnett, seven, 
asked their school to run a dress-up-as-an-animal day to raise money for the chimps after watching Baby Chimp Rescue. The boys presented their idea, produced a poster and wrote to parents after getting the go-ahead from their head teacher, Adrian Prattley, at Hanley Swan Primary School. Proud mum, Gina Barnett, said, Our children have been so moved by this programme that they've decided to try and raise as much money as possible to help build a new sanctuary for chimps. They have watched Professor Ben Garrod visit Jimmy and Jenny Desmond at their rescue centre in Liberia. Jimmy and Jenny rescue orphaned baby chimps. They are critically endangered due to diseases from humans, habitat loss and illegal pet trade. This has been captivating for the boys as the baby chimps are so like children. They love to be tickled and also to play peekaboo. Mr Prattley said, Dougal and Fergus wrote me a very persuasive letter two weeks ago asking if the school could support the fundraising efforts. After getting the go-ahead with the event, they've organised a dress-up-as-an-animal day, delivered an assembly to the whole school, written a piece for the weekly newsletter and have developed a page about the project on the school website. Thanks to the boys' efforts, the whole school is motivated to raise as much money as possible to support such a worthy cause. Professor Garrard sent the boys a message saying, It's amazing that you want your school to do a fundraiser. Jimmy, Jenny and the kids will all be so pleased. Mrs Barnett added, We're obviously extremely proud of their commitment, enthusiasm and motivation. We'd be really grateful if you were able to support Dougal and Fergus in their fundraising efforts. And just for information, the Just Giving page is www.justgiving.com slash crowdfunding slash Liberia Chimpanzee Rescue. The day for the, I imagine, for their um, dress-up as an animal day has been set for January the 31st. And it's accompanied by a rather lovely photo of the two boys looking like chimps. And that sounds odd, but it's a painting of two chimps with cutouts where the heads would be and the boys' heads are sticking through the the (laughs) picture. Over to you, Catherine. Car thieves must pay back £1 each. A gang who stole cars worth £30,000 have no assets and will have to pay back just a pound each as a nominal fee or face a day in jail. Car key burglars Billy Cowley, Brandon Gorman and Reese Williams-Brown raided an Evesham home while a young child slept inside and were later involved in extremely dangerous driving in a stolen car during a failed getaway. A hearing took place at Worcester Crown Court last Friday to discuss how to recover the cost of the stolen cars from the defendants, all now serving prison sentences, after some debate about their value. The owner had valued the cars at £25,000 each. Richard Frank, prosecuting, said all three defendants had no assets, so only nominal orders could be made in any case. However, Judge Nicholas Cartwright said at the hearing that there was always a chance the defendants could inherit money or come by it in other ways, arguing that the Crown Prosecution Service often did not make proceeds of crime applications for car-key burglaries, despite them involving the theft of high-value cars. I can't think of any reason why such POCA, that's Proceeds of Crime Applications, timetables shouldn't be set said the judge. The judge set the benefit figure in the poker at £30,000, the combined value of the Volkswagen Golf, £18,000, and the Mercedes-Benz A-Class, 
£12,000 stolen in the car key burglary. The judge made a nominal £1 confiscation order for each of the defendants, which must be paid within the next three months, with a day in prison in default of payment. The order is expected to be confirmed by the judge on February the 10th. Because the defendants were not present at the hearing, the judge said the order would stand unless correspondence was received from them, taking issue with it, in which case another hearing could take place. The trio of burglars broke into the home in Cartwright Way, Evesham, on June the 17th last year, stole car keys and made off in the two high-value cars, the Golf and Mercedes, while the homeowners and their son were asleep inside. The following day, all three men were involved in a police chase on the M42 in a different stolen car, a Seat Leon, attempting a getaway even though the car's tyres had been shredded by a police stinger. The three all received jail sentences when they appeared together at Worcester Crown Court last July, and two of the men missed the birth of their children as a result. Billy Cowley, aged 22, of Birmingham, Brandon Gorman, aged 22, of Birmingham, and 20-year-old Rhys Williams-Brown of Birmingham admitted the Evesham burglary and theft of a Volkswagen Golf and Mercedes A200. Gorman admitted aggravated vehicle-taking, after driving a stolen Seat Leon dangerously on the M42 the following day. Cowley and Williams-Brown also admitted aggravated vehicle taking after allowing themselves to be carried in the stolen Leon. Gorman alone admitted driving while disqualified on June the 17th and again on June the 18th. Gorman admitted two offences of using a car without third-party insurance, and one of failing to provide a specimen for analysis, claiming to be scared of needles. Mm. The Mercedes was fitted with a tracker, which allowed the owner to trace the vehicle to Gorman's address. By the time police arrived, the car had already been fitted with false plates. The judge jailed Gorman for four years and three months and banned him from driving for 12 months. Williams-Brown was sentenced to four years' detention in a young offender institution and banned from driving for 12 months. Cowley was jailed for three and a half years and banned from driving for 12 months. There's a quarry lorry's worry. Um, Worried residents have met to discuss a plan for sand and gravel quarrying in a village. People living in a raft of Worcestershire villages got together after concerns were raised about huge lorries travelling through their villages to reach the quarry site in Charlton. County and district councillors were at a meeting of parish councils from Cropthorne, Charlton, Wick and Fladbury to discuss the quarry plan, part of the emerging minerals plan for Worcestershire. Ian Southcott, chairman of the Fladbury Parish Council, said, Our main concern is the transport to access the site. Lorries of up to 44 tonnes will be coming to the villages to get on to the A44. If we have to deal with that coming five or two days a week, it'll be very disruptive. This is also the potential of noise and dust from those operations, and we're also concerned that the mineral company may jump the gun before the minerals plan is entered, which may not be for another 18 months. Worcestershire County Council's Emerging Minerals Plan identified areas in the Vale of Evesham as potential spots for gravel extraction. The Charlton site was identified 
and this will go to a formal examination in public early this summer. The plan will guide how much and what minerals the council needs to be able to supply, where the minerals should be extracted, how the site should be worked and how they should be restored when working is finished. Councillor Ken Pollock, Cabinet Member with Responsibility for Economy and Infrastructure at Worcestershire County Council, said Mineral extraction in Worcestershire is important to be able to provide materials for building. This consultation will feed into our Mineral Site Allocations Development Plan document, which points to preferred areas in the county where quarries will be developed and minerals will be extracted. Stunning Light Night Festival. Light Night attracted thousands of people to Worcester City Centre as the inaugural festival proved a success. On Thursday night, Worcester's High Street and Cathedral Square were transformed into a magical illuminated stage. The city centre was brought to life with a procession and performances by Cirque, Cirque Bijou's Umbrella Project and Spark, World Beater's LED Drummers, as well as a selection of interactive light installations and walkabout artists such as the Lampshade Ladies, Kitchen Sink and TV Heads. In addition, work by recent graduate Thomas Brown and University of Worcester Creative Media students was on show in Crowngate and the university's art house. Amongst the crowds were lots of locals as well as visitors from further afield. David Edmonds, festival director for Organiser Seven Arts, said, I'm so thrilled with the response and particularly with the number of people interacting and engaging with the festival. Everyone has worked so hard to pull it together and it's brilliant to see the appetite from the public for this kind of event. I'm excited for what we have to come. I think the fantastic local reaction is a real endorsement for our festivals going forward. Festival visitor and Worcester resident Joe Oxholm said, It was fantastic to see the centre of Worcester buzzing with activity and anticipation on a dark January evening. We loved visiting the different installations and really enjoyed the ambient sounds and mellow feel of Halo before the carnival atmosphere of the Spark. A great way to start 2020. And there are lots of pictures uh, showing all the different things that were going on on the night. Looks quite a different activity. Mm. MP issues call for action on pubs. West Worcestershire MP Harriet Baldwin has called on the Chancellor to act on beer and duty in the upcoming budget to help more local pubs to stay open. According to the MP, brewing and pubs support 1,334 jobs and contributes just over £40 million to the local economy in West Worcestershire. Mrs Baldwin said, pubs are often the hub of their local community and we all value the work they do. There are over 130 pubs in West Worcestershire and each of these is an important local business offering jobs, especially to young people. I've joined the hospitality industry asking for the Chancellor to have a look at the current tax regime and ensure that the right conditions are in place to protect these valued local assets. Mrs Baldwin attended an event in Westminster hosted by the British Beer and Pub Association to show support for a national campaign to help more pubs stay open. British Beer and Pub Association Chief Executive Emma McClarkin added, 
beer duty has increased by 60% over the last 17 years, and now the UK has one of the highest rates of tax in Europe. When over two-thirds of all alcoholic drinks purchased in the pub are beers, a cut in beer tax would go a long way to protecting pubs across West Worcestershire. We're very grateful to Harriet Baldwin for, the, for her support for the Long Live the Local campaign and hope that the government listens to MPs across Parliament and the thousands of people across the country who are calling for a cut in beer tax to protect our pubs. The government announced the More Than a Pub campaign last year which provides small grants and specialist advice for community groups at the start of their journey to community ownership. A total of £650,000 will be allocated to the programme. And this is high time for action to help our high streets. Recent media headlines have held... I'll start again. Recent media headlines have highlighted the fact that this Christmas was extremely disappointing in terms of retail sites on, on our high streets. What's more... Recent figures from the BBC Data Unit show that £1 billion in empty premises business rates relief is applied in England and Wales each year. This level of relief on empty premises is just the latest evidence of the negative impact of business rates increases on the most vulnerable business in our towns and cities. As one of the main costs of doing business... Business rates take no account of the affordability, whether a business is small or large, profitable or not. Business rates focus purely on the rateable value of the premises from which they operate. It is an antiquated and unfit-for-purpose system that is in urgent need of a radical rethink. The very fact that successive governments have had to implement various business and retail rates rebate schemes is further evidence that the current system is well past its sell-bear date. Sensible reform of the system would result in far fewer empty shops in our towns and cities and would reduce the need for retrospective reliefs. Failure to act would inevitably lead to yet more closures on our high streets. Promisingly, the new government has promised a wholesale review of business rates, simplifying the system and taking more of the small firms that need support most out of it must be the priority. Policymakers need to remember that it's these businesses that inject competition and diversity into our business landscape. Thank you, Jane. And that concludes the general news stories for the week. Um, We'll move on to some sports stories. And I'll begin with a rather nice one about Worcester City and something slightly different. The headline goes, Club Cameraman Saves City Match. Replacing Charlie Dickens was probably not among the great expectations cameraman-turned-saviour Rich Widdison had for City's trip to Tiverdale. A little more than 80 minutes had been played when the action stopped, with City a goal to the good in the Midland Football League Cup third round. Most of the 115-strong crowd was baffled by the prospect of a little fog causing a halt to proceedings. But it turned out injured referee Dickens simply could not go on. Poised to keep filming, qualified match official and superfan, 
Widdison's phone rang with the request that had threatened to come for years. Step up, or the game is off. As City debuts go, it was as influential as any player could wish for. A 1-0 victory seen through to bag a place in the last eight, with the carrot of a final at Walsall now dangling. The phone rang and I wouldn't normally answer it during the game, but Jack Hundley, who helps with our social media, said it was clear one of the officials had to come off, said Widdison. We needed someone to take over, otherwise the game would have been off. I asked if he was sure. I didn't want to run halfway across the pitch to get sent back. But the assistant who took over gave me my instructions, and that was it, really. I nearly got called on earlier in the season, but that time they had someone who had a kit with him. And there was another time a few years ago as well, but this was the first time I actually went on. It was good to have a go at it for ten minutes, but it makes you realise how difficult the job is. Being out there instead of filming or watching opens your eyes. I paid my fiver to get in, filmed the game and ended up on the line. Not many people can say that. The tongue-in-cheek stick from the sidelines, particularly from the city faithful, was inevitably relentless. Fortunately, said Widdison, I didn't really have anything to do. I gave three decisions and they were all to Dividale, so no one could say I wasn't fair. The only ones that said anything were our players, but it was all well-natured. And if City do progress to a battle at the banks, the ever-ready ref will be on hand to help again if required. I'll have a kit on underneath and be ready, said Widdison with a smile. It was a good job he retained that sense of humour because long-time friend and city chairman Steve Good was never likely to let the opportunity pass. I drove Rich to the game and my worry now is whether he will get cramp in the back of the car, said Good. The only major decision he had to make was a ball he viewed as out of play but not even half of it had gone out. The club will be making a small donation to get him some new glasses. I thought it was a good fun story. Over to you, Catherine. Here's a story about boxing for youngsters. Worcester Community Trust has teamed up with West Mercia Police to organise boxing lessons with the aim of stemming a rise in antisocial behaviour. Coach Sean Lacroix will work with WCT and the police to host the lessons for people aged between 8 and 16 at Warnden Youth and Community Centre in Shap. Drive. Mark Stedman from Worcester Community Trust said the Trust and our local partners had observed an increase in antisocial behaviour near to our Warnden Community Centre. Some of the young people had previously been involved in our youth provision whilst others we had no, no, no knowledge of. Mr Stedman said that after meeting with young people in the area the Worcester Community Trust recruited Mr Lacroix to provide weekly classes for youths that would like to learn a new skill. Boxing coach Mr Lacroix, who's 35, said the idea of these classes is to give the younger generation something to do and get them off the streets and help them into a better way of life. It's a sort of knife-down, gloves-up sort of thing. With children getting bored, they have the intention of playing around places where people don't want them. West Mercia Police and Crime Commissioner John Campion will fund the project for the next 12 months. The sessions will enable children to learn the ability to box, how to put combinations together, how to defend themselves, give them discipline and aim to give them a way to see a future away from crime or antisocial behaviour. Mr Lacroix, who's from Worcester, added, fingers crossed the children will take advantage of this and enjoy the sport, not just for the exercise, 
but for the self-defence, the weight loss, the mental state, discipline and the socialising side of things, boxing is an excellent way to enhance cardiovascular health, burn calories and lose or maintain your weight. Mr Steadman added, the sessions will also be supported by youth staff who can help to build community spirit, work with the young people to explore how we can work with them moving forwards, improve communication, social and motivational skills and educate young people on the impact of antisocial behaviour. The first session is going to be taking place tomorrow evening, Friday, January the 24th. And now women's cricket. Worcestershire's Rapids player, Sarah Glenn, is in England's squad for the ICC Women's T20 World Cup. And Blackfinch New Road is to host another women's international this summer in another boost for the county. Glenn is part of a 15-strong squad for the tournament in Australia during February and March. It precedes the two 220 home series against India and South Africa. Worcestershire will play host to India in the first Royal London ODI on Wednesday, July the 1st at 11am. Last summer, Glenn took 16 wickets for Rapids in the ECB County Championship, 50-over competition at 19.94 runs apiece and with an economy rate of 3.68. She also picked up four scalps in the ECB T20 tournament with an economy rate of only 4.5 runs per over. Glenn said, Worcester has only just become my home, but I have a lot to thank them for. They have a continued tremendous support, and I've always received in county cricket, which has led to being selected for England. If selected, it would be nice to play in front of some familiar faces at Blackfinch New Road. It's a ground that always gives good support to England women, and I'm sure it will be the same this summer. And another cricket story, but this time about uh, the men. Worcestershire's long-serving opener Daryl Mitchell has agreed a contract extension to the end of the 2021 season. Mitchell, who had one season remaining of his current four-year deal, has put pen to paper on an additional 12 months at Blackfinch New Road. Worcestershire Cricket Steering Group chairman Paul Pridgen believes the 36-year-old batsman still has a massive part to play with the county. Badsey Bourne Academy product Mitchell made his senior debut 15 years ago and has been a mainstay of the county side in all forms of cricket. He has scored 12,664 first-class runs for Worcestershire at an average of nearly 40 and is 23rd on the all-time list of the county's run scorer. Sorry, run scorers. Former captain Mitchell is placed seventh on the club's all-time list of first-class century makers with 36. And a couple of other bits of news. Ben Cox and Ben Tuig will be striving to push Southern Districts into the South Australia Cricket Association Premier Cricket first grade playoff spots before they return to England. The Worcestershire duo returned to two-day action for the remaining four matches of the group programme, with their side currently occupying sixth spot in the 13th team table. Districts have won four, lost three and drawn one of their opening eight matches in accumulating 85 points. They're 35 points behind Kensington, who are in the fourth and final qualifying spot for the knockout stages, but do have a match in hand. 
Right, well, um, this is a, a, a Worcester story, um, a, a rugby story, sorry. A boost for stricken Worcester ace Fatty Alifer. Michael Fatty Alifer's recovery appeared to take another step forward when he tried eating for the first time in more than two weeks. The Warriors ace has been in hospital since January the 4th, having sustained spinal damage during a 62-5 to defeat at Saracens. The club reported Fatty Oliver had successful surgery to alleviate bruising and swelling on his spinal cord, which left him with reduced power and sensation in his arms and legs. He has since been recovering in intensive care in London, with wife Tatiana Fatty Oliver posting updates via Instagram. She reported that Fatty Oliver could be out of intensive care this week. Tatiana posted on Tuesday night, praise God that he is at least able to try pureed food for the first time in two and a half weeks. Feeding tube is still in, but we count every bit of progress. Asked about Fatty Alifer's progress at Tuesday's press conference, Worcester's director of rugby, Alan Solomon, said, He has a bit more movement, which is really positive. I am positive about it and hopeful he will make a full recovery. Fans and well-wishers can pass on messages of encouragement to Fatty Alifer and his family through a dedicated email address set up by the club. And if you'd like to do that, the email address is fats, F-A-T-S, at warriors.co.uk. And this is last cricket story. Former Worcestershire player Richard Illingworth has received global recognition after winning the David Shepherd Trophy for Umpire of the Year as part of the ICC Awards. Ellingworth follows in the footsteps of three-time winners Richard Kettleborough as the second English umpire to receive the award. The trophy is awarded annually by the International Cricket Council to the ICC Umpire of the Year and is named after the respected English official. The first was awarded to Simon Tofel in 2004. Ellingworth, a key part of the Worcestershire side, who won seven trophies in five years in the late 1980s and early 1990s, said, It's an honour and a privilege to be named Umpire of the Year. To join the prestigious list of previous recipients of the award is very humbling. Although umpiring can be seen to be quite individual, there's a huge amount done as a collective. I'd like to thank all my fellow match officials, the ICC and the ECB offices, who've been great sounding boards and inspiration over the years. Also, thank you to my coach, Dennis Burns, who helps me a huge amount and puts a great perspective on tough days. My family have been a tremendous support over the years and I'm delighted to share this award with them. ECB umpires manager Chris Kelly said, Richard has been a world-class umpire for a number of years and this award is more than deserved. Thank you, Jane. So that completes the news stories for this week. Uh, Just leaves me to give you, first of all, the sunset and sunrise times. Uh, The sun rose this morning on Thursday, the 23rd of January at 8.01 a.m. and set at 4.39 p.m. Sadly, there are no birthdays in the birthday file for this week. So I'm going to wish my daughter a happy birthday as it's hers today. So happy birthday, Laura. I think I'm allowed to do that. 
Um, I'm now going to read the thought for the day, which is Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 14. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? That concludes this week's recording. I'd like to thank tonight's readers, Catherine and Jane, and the production team, Duncan Wynne on the other side of the glass for all his efforts, and Carolyn and Jean and Joe for admin and copying. So, just leaves me to tell you that the obituaries follow on after this, and for everyone to say goodbye. So it's goodbye from me, Pippa, from Catherine. Goodbye from me, Catherine. And goodbye from me, Jane. Bye-bye. Edward Farmer, known as Ted, passed away on Thursday, January the 9th, 2020, aged 69. A service will be held at Worcester Crematorium on January the 29th at 2.30pm. Family flowers only, please. Wear whatever colour you would like. Donations to be divided between St Richard's Hospice and Fernhill Heath Baptist Church. Edith Harrison, passed away peacefully on December the 25th, 2019. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, January the 24th at 2.30pm. Family flowers only, please, but donations, if desired, for the Alzheimer's Society may be left on the collection plate at the crematorium or sent to E.J. Gummery & Son, 6870, Ombersley Road, Worcester, WR37EU. <clears throat> Henry John Small, known as David, passed away peacefully on January the 9th, 2020, aged 77. Funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, the 27th of January at 3:15 p.m. Family flowers only, please. Donations if desired for Acorns Children's Hospice may be left in the collection box available at the service or sent directly to the charity. Inquiries to the Cooperative Funeral Care, telephone 01905 22137. Edna Francis Wardle passed away peacefully at Perry Manor Nursing Home. The funeral service will take place at St Gabriel's Church, Hanley Swan, on Thursday, January the 30th at 1pm. Family flowers only, please, but if desired, donations for Acorns Children's Hospice may be sent to F.W. Spilsbury, Funeral Director, 12 Upper Housel Road, Malvern, Worcestershire, WR14 1TL. Teresa Lucy Rickards of Henwick Park, Worcester, passed away peacefully at home on December the 27th, 2019. The funeral service will be at St George's Catholic Church on Monday, January the 27th at 2pm, followed by interment 
at Astwood Cemetery. Family flowers only, please, but donations, if desired, for St Richard's Hospice may be left on the collection plate at the church or sent to E.J. Gummery & Son, 6870 Ombersley Road, Worcester, WR3 7EU. John Trevelyan, retired former teacher of Hanley Castle School, died peacefully on Wednesday, January 8th, 2020. The funeral is to be held at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, January the 27th, 2020, at 1.45pm. Donations, if desired, in memory of John, are for St Richard's Hospice and Pershaw Community Hospital. These donations can be left in the donations box or sent to AV Band. Joyce Doreen Bright passed away peacefully at home on January the 5th, 2020, aged 97 years. A funeral service shall take place at Worcester Crematorium on Tuesday, January the 28th, 2020, at 12.15pm. Family flowers only, please. Donations, if desired, can be left in the donation box provided for Acorns Children's Hospice Trust or sent to AV Band Funeral Directors, 41 St Nicholas Street, Worcester. WR11UW Maria Nicoli, formerly of Victoria Avenue, Worcester, passed away in Orpington on Friday, January the 3rd, 2020, aged 83 years. Mass will take place on Friday, January the 24th, 2020, at 12:30 p.m. at St Thomas More Roman Catholic Church, East Dulwich, London. SE 228ND, followed by Honour Oak Crematorium. Family flowers only, please. Donations, if desired, may be sent to Age UK, care of N.S. Wibberley, 280 High Street, Beckenham, BR31DY. Brian O'Brien passed away peacefully on December the 28th, 2019 aged 89 years. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Tuesday, January the 28th at 11.30am. Family flowers only, please, but donations if desired for Dementia UK may be left on the collection plate at the crematorium or sent to E.J. Gummery & Son, 6870, Ombersley Road, Worcester, WR37EU. Lawrence Wrighton of Peopleton, on January the 16th, 2020, peacefully in hospital, aged 86 years. Cremation private, a service of thanksgiving will be held at Peopleton Church on Thursday, January the 30th at 3pm. Family flowers only, Donations for St Richard's Hospice may be sent to E. Hill and Son, Funeral Directors, Pershaw, WR101HZ. Audrey Wood. Linda and Shirley are sad to announce that Audrey passed away on January the 14th, aged 89 years. The funeral is at the Vale Crematorium, Fladbury, on Friday, February the 7th at 12 noon. There will be a collection for Midlands Air Ambulance Charity, in preference to flowers, please. 
These may be sent to E. Hill and Son, Funeral Rectors, Pershaw, WR10 1HZ. Christopher John Berry, known as Chris, died on December the 19th, aged 50 years. Funeral service will take place at St John's Church on Thursday, January the 30th at 1pm, followed by internment at St John's Cemetery. Family flowers only, please, but donations, if desired, for MenCap may be left at the service or sent to Bedwardine Funeral Services. Telephone 01905 748 811. Barbara Pauline Coombs of Wheatfields Park, Callow End, passed away peacefully but suddenly at Worcestershire Royal Hospital on Monday, December the 30th, aged 75 years. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, January the 30th at 12.15pm. Family flowers only, please, but donations, if desired, for Leukaemia UK or St Richard's Hospice may be left on the collection plate at the crematorium or sent to E.J. Gummery & Son, 6870 Ombersley Road, Worcester, WR37EU. Jennifer Mary George, née Furlong, passed away peacefully in hospital on January the 13th, aged 75. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, January the 30th at 10.45am. Family flowers only, please. Donations to Acorns Children's Hospice or Epilepsy UK. Care of Bedwardine Funeral Services, The Coach House, Bromyard Road, Worcester, WR25BT. David Pugh, former employee of Warnden Highways Department, passed away peacefully on December the 27th, aged 74. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, January the 29th at 1pm. Family flowers only, please, but donations if desired for Parkinson's UK may be left on the collection plate at the crematorium or sent to E.J. Gummery & Son, 6870 Ombersley Road, Worcester, WR3, 7EU. June Lillian Wood passed away peacefully on January the 2nd, aged 84. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium Chapel on Thursday, January the 30th at 10am, followed by interment at Aswood Cemetery. Family flowers only, please, but donations, if desired, for the British Heart Foundation may be left on the collection plate at the crematorium chapel or sent to E.J. Gummery & Son, 6870 Ombersley Road, Worcester, WR3 7EU.